0: Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Whoa, that's not good. Oh, I don't need this. I'm already late. Somebody will come. Anybody out there? Do you have a phone? No. Sorry. Somebody? Hello? There are two people stuck on an escalator, and we need help. Now, would somebody please do something? Believe this? You gotta be kidding me! <laughs> I'm gonna cry. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's not enough left to do. Can you get uh, claustrophobia if you're stuck on an emble- elevator or an escalator? I don't know. I don't think you can do that. Uh, we played that video because some of us, many of us, feel stuck in our spiritual lives, and uh, to be set free from that is actually rather simple. It's not easy, you, you just can't stay where you are. You can't remain passive and be a victim. And that's what we're looking at, uh, especially in the next two weeks. But I wanted to stop before we get into our, our learning time and say you guys are an awesome church uh, for a couple reasons this week. One, uh, our total for Life Care Pregnancy Center and our celebration of life was just about $43,000. So that's good stuff. Way to go, church. They, um, boy, they, <laughs> they, they, love, they love Grace Covenant over there at Life Care. Uh, I, and second of all, I just, I just love that you guys keep coming back. Um, we're in a series about going deeper. It's, it's easier to go to a church that just teaches you what the Bible says and not what it means. Uh, some of these things that we're going to be talking about, especially this week and next week, are going to be uncomfortable and a little bit scary, but they heal. But they heal. And it's, 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 it's a joy to be part of a church that doesn't want to be, you know, uh, commit, learn, serve, repeat. You know, commit, learn, serve, repeat. They, you, you guys want more, and I am very grateful to be part of a church like that. We're, if you're new, we're going through, uh, a book's kind of helping us through a series on growing deeper Uh, called Resolve, but the name of the book is called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. We're selling copies in the lobby if you'd like to do that. We even have a discussion group in the old auditorium right after this at 11 o'clock. You just go to the sermon. There's people waiting for you, and let's talk this thing out. So uh, the first two weeks we spent together learning about the six cycles uh, or six stages of faith that people go through. Many people just get stuck after the first three. And and we we discovered that. And then th- these next two weeks, we're gonna we're going to talk about uh, how to how to learn to get past the major sticking points in our lives. We're gonna f- go deeper and try to figure out how to understand ourselves and to see what God's doing in our life. Now, here's the thing. Today, we're going to look at what's called the bent. I uh, see that's a word from C.S. Lewis. The idea is that. Uh, It is God's design for uh, each and every one of us to to be designed uniquely. Every aspect of our life is somewhat very special. Each of us have our own name in His world, and and no one else knows it, and there's no other name like that. It's to be celebrated because of its uniqueness, and all creativity should be celebrated, but uh, especially in the image of God. But somewhere in between the design phase and the production phase, uh, we were bent, and we are not who we should be. We were not according to plan. And this whole life is not according to plan. And then we have this d- deformity of the soul. Um, at, at, our, at our conception, something was infused to us. In the Bible, it's called the fall of mankind. And now we have uh, a, dis- a bent, a bent. And sometimes some of our bents are inconvenient, and some of them are disabilities. An inconvenient bent, for example, physically would be poor vision. It's kind of a hassle. Blindness, that's a disability. We have these also in our souls. We have these bends. And we are not who we are meant to be, and so here's how we must live. We must discover, regardless of how fearful it might be, we must discover that bent, or those bents, and then we must live wisely, and then we turn over the straightening of that bent to the power of the glory of God. It's His doing to make that right, okay? And so th- today, just with that in mind, we'll spend two weeks on that, but today the outline is going to be, let's, let's, let's just spend more time understanding what is this bent, and then what can we do about it? What is this bent, and what can we do about it? I think I have four little ways of looking at what it means to be bent. The first one is um, rather contemporary. Look at a bent as like an addiction, right? We most of us understand how addictions work. There's something a physical addiction, and your body says, "I must have that," and then it ruins us. It destroys us. Okay, so it is with our souls. Our souls have addictions, and. And our soul, again, we could have this at conception, and so we have a soul that's addicted uh, to succeed. And so um, we fear failure, and so we drive our lives. We drive our lives so that we'll always be in control. Some people have a bent where um, they have an addiction to approval of other people. They're people pleasers because they fear rejection of other people. And what do they sacrifice on that? Usually integrity, usually integrity. And, and these are more than just habits, okay? These are, these are reoccurring expressions of the same problem, this bent. And you will take this bent to the grave with you. And they express themselves in, our, in, in sins uh, that, that cause us to be pushed away from self, our true self, to be pushed away from other people, and to be pushed away from God. That's what it means to be bent in that context. The Bible doesn't use a word like an addiction. The Bible uses the word idolatry. And we think we're in an age where we don't have idols. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, we do. Uh, an idol in the Bible is when you reject what, who God is and what he has for you, and you say, I'm going to go get it somewhere else. I know, I know better. But the nature of every idol, all idols are, you think it serves you, you serve it, and then it destroys you. You become a slave to it, and then you become a victim of it. And so, again, you have an, you, if you idolize success, if you idolize success, then you worship it by being driven, and you sacrifice the present. Your whole life is missing the present moment, and then you have no joy. The reason you were driven for success in the first place is never achieved. Uh, you, you, you are making an idol out of approval of other people. And so you do what you have to do, usually costing some kind of integrity. It certainly costs you your definition of who you are. And then generally what happens is you get the approval of no one. Because when you worship idols, you usually die of some form of irony. The thing you wanted the most is the thing that devours you. It's the Frankenstein factor. I built this to be like God, and the thing I built destroyed me. It's, it, it, th- these are not habits. These are different expressions of the same problem, this bent, and we will take the bent to the grave with us. And it expresses itself in the way it pushes us away from ourself, away from other people, and away from God. Now, here's the fun part of this, this bent and, and, and its consequences. Here's the magic of God's power. If we choose to identify that and live wisely and submit our lives to the power of His Spirit, then the very bent that is driving us away from ourselves, others, and God, is the very thing God uses to draw us closer to our, to, our, to our true selves, to other people, usually the people that get it, and to our dependence upon God. So there's some judo involved, the very thing that's, that's destroying us, just like a real God, right, as opposed to false gods. It, it is being used to empower us and to make us right. Still another analogy that's used in the Bible is when it, when it talks about the frailty of the human condition, after, you know, the bent production is what he calls uh, clay jars or jars of clay. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul writes this, but we have this treasure, and the treasure is God's glory. You can see that in the previous verse. We have the treasure of God's glory in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Okay? We're, we're The purpose of, in many a purpose of life is to show ourselves out there in such a way to show this contrast between who we are and the surpassing power of the glory of God. And and we are containing that in in jars of clay. And and the Christian growth story is the growth story is when we start to realize what kind of jar of clay we are, and the more we realize what kind of pot we are, the farther down we get, the more we realize how much the surpassing power of God's glory is i mean it's pretty typical that when you're young in the lord you're just getting started you think you know what I, I believe i'm a jar of clay and i look something like this and i'm shiny and i'm pretty and i contain this this surpassing power of the glory of god and then life comes along and 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 you you're starting to be it's being revealed to yourself that you're not who you thought you are? Life gets hard, and then it gets harder still. And it's showing cracks in this pot, and those, and the cracks in this clay is starting. You start saying, you know what? You know what? Maybe I'm not this kind of pot. Maybe I'm more like this kind of pot. There's self awareness, but but again, if you keep living life, if you start living your life surrendered to God, and, and again, you're just trying to be true to things. It's like life gets harder still, and you start to realize that you have an addiction, and it's your ego and you do worship an idol and it's triune it is me myself and i and because of the because of this addiction to self and because of this worship of of our ego we realize that we're 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 lucky to be this kind of jar you know it, we'll just we'll just that's who we picture ourselves now on a good day and when we get to that place in our life we start to realize what this Passage means when it says we are uh, containing within this jar of clay the glory of God. And to show, why, why do we come to this point where we look like this? To show the all-surpassing power that we have is not from us, but it's from God. Now we start to brag about the, God, the power of God in us, the all-surpassing power of God. That Life just does that to us. Here's another way of looking at it. I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to show you how the bent shows up and, and progressively over the years, okay, different pots. Now I want to show you just in a line chart when you're just kind of living life and you're going along and you become a believer. And as you become a believer, again, you're starting to realize more and more life gets hard because of the demands of life get hard, the consequences for decisions. You're starting to be more of a grown-up, but also these bents are showing up. You're starting to realize you are not the clay pot you thought you were, okay? And, 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 and why would God allow that to continue to happen? So that you could live wisely. So that you would depend upon him and his surpassing power of his glory to change you. And life continues to go this way. Now, here's what happens in most people's lives. This is where they get stuck. The size of the cross, it just stays the same. And that's why people will say, my faith isn't working for any, me anymore. Yeah, I used to do that, but it, I don't now. And the reason is is because your, your faith at 20 doesn't work at 30, and the faith at 30 doesn't work at 40, and the faith at 40 doesn't work at 50. Because you are showing yourself to be bent beyond your capability to straighten. And, and what you're going to need is a bigger view of God because as you get farther down this road, you can't handle success or failure. Either one of these will unravel you because you're committed too much to this self worship or this idolatry, this addiction to the ego. And so G- God's goal for us is, is to set, a, set you free from yourself. Here's what God's trying to do He's trying to set you free from yourself so that you could be your true self. Because when we're self forgetful, oddly enough, this, when we're self forgetful, we're most like the self. In the design, the original design, the way we were meant to be. And when we're free from ourselves, we can be our true selves. How does God do that? He wants us to be enamored with the, pow- the surpassing power of His glory. And so, as we cons- become aware of God's holiness, right, all the while we're becoming more and more aware of our own sinfulness, but as we become aware of, of His holiness, God grows hopefully right now, this is the smallest God, your view of God uh, that you'll ever have for the rest of your life. This is the smallest view of God that you'll ever have for the rest of of your life. Because this size of your view of God won't work in five years from now or 10 years from now. God's able, it's your view of God that matters, the most important thing about you. Let me just summarize maybe all four of these illustrations by saying this. This is a great quote from Tim Keller. He's a pastor in New York City. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and bent in ourselves than we ever dared to believe, and yet at the very same time are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope. It's worse than we thought, and it's better than we thought. And so here's what we're talking about, certainly in these next two weeks, maybe for the rest of our lives. We need to find out what this bent is. Ask around. I'm sure others know that. Okay? It, and, and it's bigger than you. You can't fix this. Second thing to do after this discovery is realize that you need to live wisely according to that bent. You need to live in submission to the fact that that this disability is stronger than your willpower. Live wisely. And the third thing is you have to surrender this to God and His surpassing power. And look what happens when the power of the Holy Spirit gets in there and can straighten you up. If you ignore this, If you ignore this bent and even this process that God has us in, helping us realize really what kind of clay pot we are are, or, or how addicted we are or how idol worshiping we become or how small our view of God is, if you ignore that, your life will be ruined. You will live a life of despair and regret. And that is not the life God has for you. So let me let me give you an example of that. Let me give you an example. And, and and please don't believe that by attending church and filling in notebooks, you're going you're gonna you know get there to the safe place. Because here let me show you an example. I'm gonna use David again like I used last week because so many people know the story of David. Again, the iconic king of Israel. He is the giant killer, is he not? Um, he's known as the man after God's own heart. He captured Jerusalem. It's named the city of David still to this day, right? He's God's favorite, okay? We, we all know that kind of that part of his life. Most of us know the story about how David destroyed his own life, how David uh, took uh, another man's wife. He slept with that woman. He caused her to become pregnant. He thought he could cover this whole thing up and had the husband killed and he ended up marrying her to cover it up. Now, th- that's the story, but that's not the way the story is written. The way the story is written in the Bible is to show us that David's demise was for much deeper reasons than being caught in, a, in some kind of sin. The way the story is written it is the author in 1 and 2 Samuel, in the, at this point, the biographer of David, is trying to tell us a lesson so that we won't forget it. He's going to repeat it and restate it so many times that you and I will never forget this, that David fell because he ignored his bent and he chose not to live wisely. That's why David fell. He ignored his bent and he chose not to live wisely. That's how you destroy a life, a family, a nation. See, David's a man of passion. Every, if you just read the stories. He's a man of passion. It's the way God made him. It's the way he was bent. That's usually how it goes. The blessing from God is also becomes the cursing of God. The strengths out of control are, are our weaknesses. There's a story in 1 Samuel chapter 25 where David and his men, there are about 600 men, and they're providing security for kind of a rich gentleman farmer named Nabal. Nabal means fool, so you can tell what kind of employer he must have been. But um, after doing this for maybe a year or so, it becomes sheep shearing season where they, you know, it's just kind of an annual event. It's technically, it's kind of like payday, where they slaughter a couple of these sheep and they have this big barbecue, and David and his men, it's time to get what's due to them. Nabal, the fool, says... Why should I give my water, my bread, and my barbecue to a guy like David? Now, when David hears that, here's what he says. Here's how he responds. He, no, don't don't sell the shot. He says he says he's three one sentence. He says, "Men, get your swords. Get your swords because this man I've been watching over his his providing security for this last year, and he's returning." evil for good. And here's what he says as he mounts his horse. Verse 22, chapter 25, may God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male among all that belong to Nabal. Nabal's not letting him come to the barbecue, and David says, we need to put on our swords, mount up, and he swears to God, may God deal with me ever so severely if one male is alive tomorrow morning. I don't think the punishment fits the crime on this one. Um, This seems to be an overreaction by an extremely volatile and passionate individual to me. I mean, what about, like, the shepherds? (laughs) What did they do? Right? Or the cooks. Or that old guy that stacks the wood. Or the little boy that goes and gets the water every day. They're going to all have to be slaughtered? I mean, the story ends in a good way where Nabal's wife goes and puts a stop to it. But he, listen to this. This story is a story about how passions rule David. And he needs to learn to live Wisely. Or he'll go off and destroy things. We also know David is a poet, right, and a great worshiper. He's a very passionate person in both ways. He can be angry. He can be happy. When the ark came into Jerusalem, there was no one happier than David. He's dancing around. If you read his poetry in the the Psalms, you'll see that he's in touch, deep. He has a very tender heart. But here's the problem. He has a tender heart but a very thin skin. He's like an emotional thinking person. He doesn't think, think. He emotionally thinks. And his passion... It's a gift from God, but it's also a curse. And it's his bent. And this passion rules David because he chooses to ignore it. It's an addiction for him. It's an idol for him. He does what the passions tell him to do. And so here's the thing. When you're a passionate person like that, you need to understand. Here's how you live wisely. You realize you have to set up boundaries that other people don't have to set up. You have to set up structure in your life that maybe other people of discipline don't have to set up. You, you, you can't go some places that other people can go. You can't see some things that other people can do. You have to put up higher fences. And it's, it's to protect yourself and the people that you love. The point of this biography in this section right here, the, this writer wants us to know this, that David did not live wisely he did, not, he did not submit to this bentness and he did not live wisely. He did not let the Spirit of God do what he was supposed to do. Here's what he's trying to say. He's going to say it five times. What's a guy like you doing in a place like this? That's what the author's saying. What's a guy with a high passion ratio and high volatility? Doing in a place like this. That's the story itself. And the way this author tells stories, he tells great stories, the first, second Samuel, he's always doing contrast, back and forth, good and bad, good and bad, good. He does the same thing right here. And so in chapter 10 uh, of 2 Samuel, the writer says, here's how it's supposed to be. Here's what he says in chapter 10. This is what David, this is when David's doing what David does, what kings do. In chapter, the last three verses, there's there's nothing that separates the last chapter. 10 from 11. So watch how fast it happens. Last three verses of chapter 10. When David gathered all of Israel and crossed over the Jordan, went into Helam. He's, he's a warrior king. The Arameans formed battle lines uh, to meet David and fought against him, but they fled from Israel, and David killed 700 of their charioteers and 40,000 of their soldiers. And when all other kings saw what he had done, that they were routed by Israel, they, be, they, they made peace, with Israelites, and they became subject to them. Point is, this is what kings do. David was doing what David does. David is doing it right. This is when things are well. And the next sentence, the first sentence of 2 Samuel, chapter 11, is the day that the kingdom of Israel changed. It changed on a morning. And the theme of this is, what's a guy like you doing in a place like this? Five times the author is going to say that. Five times he's going to say, David, you know yourself. You need to live wisely. Three times he says it in the first sentence. After, after, after the last sentence there were they all made peace with Israelites and they became subject to him. The next sentence, it's a haunting verse. Three times it says, look what it says, verse 11, or 11 verse one. In the spring... At the time when kings go off to war, okay, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Raban. But David remained, literally, it says David was sitting in Jerusalem. Three times, three different ways. In the spring, when kings go to war, you know what the author's saying? David Go to war. It says, next sentence, it says, or part of the sentence, He says, uh, David sent Joab and all of the men. The author's saying, what is a guy like you doing in a town where there are no men, only women? A man living by his passions. Next sentence, Right, or next sentence, right, it's part of the same verse. They destroyed and they were besieging while you were sitting? (laughs) What's a man like you doing in a place like this? David will be defeated in an entirely different battlefield, one where his win-loss record is nothing but losses. That's what this author wants you to know, that the reason he lost this battle is because he was on the wrong battlefield. You know the story. The next verse says that David is restless because he's not warring all day. He can't sleep. He looks out over his balcony and says, sees a woman bathing. No, it says, and she was very beautiful. And so he's a king, and so he calls the woman, and they have relations, and then he impregnates her. And then to cover the crime, he has Uriah, her wife, come in from the field, and he acts like he's getting a field report, and so they have dinner together and says, Uriah, tell me about the battle that everybody else is doing. Oh, okay. Sends him home to his wife with a housewarming gift, it says. Oh, good, go to your wife. You know, what I mean? it's been a long time. You've been way far away. The problem is Uriah won't go home. He'll sleep with the rest of the servants at the gate of the palace. And, and David's like, why, why would you do that? Why in the world wouldn't you go home? You're on leave. And here's what Uriah says. This is the fourth time the author wants us to say, do you not understand who you are and where you're supposed to be? Here's what Uriah says. Uriah said to David, well, the ark and Israel are staying in tents, and my master Joab and the Lord's men are all camped out in the field. Right? I mean, everybody's in tents, right? Oh, yeah. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, O great king, I will not do such a thing. I mean, who would ever miss a battle? I mean, every every able-bodied man is living in a tent. Every one of them. But, well, there's you that's not. What's a guy like you doing in a place like this? Uriah's character is in contrast to the passion of David that is ruling him. That's what the author is saying. Davis is worshiping his passion, and Uriah is worship or is, is obeying the duty that he has. The fifth time comes when the battle is almost over, and Joab, this general of his, is fed up with David staying home. And this is the fifth time someone says, Why are you still in Jerusalem? Here's what, here's what Joab says. Meanwhile, Joab fought against the Ammonites and captured the royal citadel. And Joab sent a messenger to David saying, Look, I've fought against Rabban and now I've taken its water supplies. So here's the thing: you come and besiege the city and capture it. Otherwise, I'm gonna take the city, I'm gonna name it after me. Get down here now. It's the spring. When kings go to battle, what are you? What, are, what is a guy like you doing in a place like that, a city full of women, when you are supposed to be leading us into battle? How did this fall happen? This is the lesson. How did he fall? How did David ruin his life, his family life, and his country? It's not how, it's When? Was it when he was walking on that rooftop, that sleepless night, and seeing a beautiful woman take a bath? No, 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 no. It was a long time before that. It was that time when David's conscience said to him, you're a very passionate person. You let your emotions rule you, and they dominate your life. And, and your passions are bigger than your will, and so you should, you should live wisely. And he said, shut up. I'm staying home this spring. That's when it happened. I mean, when, when, when he was waking up on that first spring morning and, and he was, and he was like just kind of sleeping in and hearing the rumble from underneath about everybody else getting ready, he was already way into enemy territory. It was late already. When he was having this leisurely breakfast on the, you know, on his patio, his foot was already in the noose. Friends, he was hanging from his ankle upside down, and he didn't even know it because he was waving at his troops, leaving the city walls. It was already over. It was done. If he could go back in time, he wouldn't go back to the rooftop. He would go back to the time where he was saying to himself, you know what, things are good. I've done good things for this country, and I deserve a long vacation. I'm just going to, like, sit this next round out, just take a long spring break, because, you know what, I should have that. And then he would say to himself, shut up. You are a passionate person that is bent. Sometimes it works for you. That's the way God made you. Mostly when you ignore this, it works against you. You Go to war. You saddle that horse. You mount that uh, that steed, and you get your sword. Because if you miss this battle, you'll be destroyed at the one back home. Look what it cost him. Look what it cost him. Not knowing himself, not living wisely, not submitting this thing to the power of God's spirit. It cost him. It cost him his conscience. It's hard to explain that. You'll see the rest of this book. He, he can't even. He doesn't know right from wrong anymore. It it cost him his kingdom. It cost him the peace of Jerusalem. It cost him all of his family. And you know why? Because he didn't, he, he didn't submit to the bent. What's your bent? Where's your trap? You're going to take this to the grave. You don't get better from bents. It will always entice you. But what are you going to do about it? James says this. But each of us, each person, each individual person is tempted when they are lured and enticed by their own desire, their own bent. Then that desire, when it's been conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings about death. It's this bent, this reoccurring sin that destroys our self, our relationship with God, and our relationship with others. Now, this is where the magic happens. If we acknowledge this this bent in us and we live wisely and we come to the realization that we can't fix this and we turn this over to the surpassing power of the glory of God, then the very thing that was destroying our life and our idol worship and our addiction is the very thing that pulls us back to who we are really meant to be, that brings us back into better relationships and back into a dependency on God that we couldn't have any other way. <laughs> so use the bent for, to, see, to show what God can do, to show the, this, this drastic comparison between these j- stupid jars of clay filled with cracks and his all surpassing power. What do you do? You live wisely. You change your habits. You change your habits. I mean, some of this is on us. First part is acknowledgement of the, and then we, we change our habits. And what that means is hey, um, are you, a, let's just use this one, we'll run it through the course. Are you a sad person, known to be melancholy? What was your nickname in high school, Eeyore, right? At Eeyore.gmail, right? Okay, right, okay, so that's okay, that's, our, that's your bent. Okay, you can see things other people can't see, that's good, okay. So, don't, don't ask yourself why am I so sad all the time when it, this it just happens so regularly in so many different bents, but uh, so your movies that you watch and enjoy, they're all sad movies. All your playlists are sad, all the books that you read are sad, what's a sad person like you doing in a place like this? Don't don't wonder why am I so melancholy all the time. Wonder why haven't I taken responsibility for a bent that I've known I've had my whole life and will take this thing to my grave. Why don't I take responsibility and change my habits and realize, you know what? Other people can watch and enjoy and entertain by tragedy. Not me. For the rest of my life, all I can have is comedy. That's it. No, nope. <laughs> that's what I'm going to do. Live wisely. Change your habit. Live wisely. Change your company. Change your company. Your friends exaggerate who you are, for better or for worse. <laughs> and, 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 and well, birds of a feather flock together. And because... Let me just Same illustration. Are all your friends sad people? I bet. I bet you guys sit around and think sad thoughts. <laughs> You're going to have to find new friends. And you need to know this on the front side of it, okay? There's a tuition payment for finding new friends. It's a desert of loneliness between the friends that you have and the friends that God wants for you. And you're going to have to go through that for a while. Because the friends God wants for you, you're going to have to be committed to letting these go and finding a whole new comrade set of comrades to get you through life. The comedy people. People that don't take you to that place, it's so easy to go. We'll talk more about this next week, about how to do these things. But I just, I just, I'm just telling you how, you know, this is the simple part, you know. So you change your habits live wisely, you, you change your you know your your company and then change your attitude. Change your attitude. And here's the attitude. Only God can fix this. You're bent. The, the frame of your soul is bent. You can't fix this. Okay, Just simply, just simplistically looking at the life of Moses and the lesson we can learn from him. Look what he's trying to do in the early part. You've seen it in the movies, right? So he's going to bring justice to Egypt and set Israel free. And so, so he breaks up a fight, loses his temper, kills a guy. And now he's wanted for murder, and now he has to run to the desert. And God's looking at him like, so you, <laughs> good for you, Moses, <laughs> bringing justice there. Do you know what it's going to take to set these people free? I'm going to have to go in there and dismantle and humiliate ten false gods so that they're the laughingstock of the future of humanity and no one's going to go back to them. And then, you know, and then I'm going to pulverize the Egyptian army and I'm going to make it an epic story. So, you know, this is a thing that only God can do. And so if you could just get out of the way and let me do a miracle or 20... We can set these people free. He says that to us. He pats us on the head and says, oh, look at you and your, you know, discipline, trying to straighten out a bent frame with your little hammer. Tink, 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 tink. This is something only God can do. If you let him in there, if you get out of the way and let him in there and work a miracle or two, you'll be a clay pot that spends most of its time bragging about the power that you have is not from within you, but from the surpassing power of the almighty glory of God. This is what you do with your bent. You find it. You live wisely, and you turn it over to God. Let him work in there. Now, most of us, all of us, are in a 12-step program, if you're healthy. Some of us have to do this formally. If you want help with this, I really want you to consider starting at Celebrate Recovery, because that's what these guys do. That's what they do. They call it hurts, habits, hang-ups. I call it a bent. There's a table in the lobby. Go by, talk to them. You don't have to be addicted to something... Like chemical, you could just be addicted to the trinity of me, myself, and I. Want to get well? It's simple, it's just not easy. You got to let go, you got to get out of the way, you got to let God work his miracle. He's going to set you free. <laughs> you love this. He's going to set you free from you so that you can be you. And when the voices come, and they tell you to obey because you're an addict, or they tell you to worship because you're an idol maker, he's not going to cure you of those voices. But when they come and they speak to you, like a 550-pound Bengal tiger that they are, you will hear now. They don't go away. They lose their power. They lose their power to the surpassing power of the glory of God. You want that? I think you do. Let's come back next week. Let's find out some more about this. Right now, let's pray for wisdom. Lord Jesus, ouch. Lord, I'd ask that your spirit would help remind us that maybe these reoccurring sins that have been happening and deepening over our lives go all the way back. If our mom and dad could have an insightful conversation, they'd say, that's the way you were bent. You were made that way. You were not designed that way, and you're going to take this to the grave. So, God, I'd ask that your spirit would show us this bent so that we might live wisely and responsibly within the parameters of what we're responsible for, and then we could turn it over to you, get out of your way, so you could work your magic in our lives. God, let us be a whole church of people that walk around and tell stories about your miracle in our life. God, don't, don't wake, a, wake us up. We're, we're stuck on an escalator. We just have to do our part. We are so grateful, not that we are finding out that we're more broken than we ever could imagine, but you're more gracious and more powerful than we could ever believe. We need a bigger view of God, and so God, we're asking you to bring that to us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about grace, visit our website at grace360.org.